Hello and welcome to the Race Dilemma podcast. My name is Drew Hawley and I'm here with my brother and co-host Daniel Sloan. This podcast is really about giving a voice to those people of a mixed heritage. Initially within our own family whose racial background is not always obvious due to their pale skin colour and have found themselves to be at the centre of a personal race dilemma and at times having to prove their ethnic credentials in order to be heard. And of course we have broadened the conversation out into the many corners of some of the so-called problems of being from a racially mixed background. And if you feel you may want to contribute or have a story to tell and would like to be featured on an episode, please reach out to us on the Race Dilemma Podcast at gmail.com. And if you really like these episodes, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and feel free to share with your family and friends. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Race Dilemma podcast. Now you may be wondering why we have different surnames and that's because we have different dads but I've never seen Daniel as my half-brother. We've always been close, more so probably because we're in fact half a generation apart. So to give you some background, our mother was born in British India, now Pakistan and came over to this country in 1951 at the age of 12. Both our fathers were white English, making us both mixed heritage of Pakistani and English backgrounds. And we wanted to share a little bit about ourselves before we looked at the main reason behind the idea for this podcast. And like all good podcasts, we have to start at the beginning. So, Daniel, you were born in 1960, right? That's right. Um, so, 15, 15 years before me. <laughs> so, at what point did you first become aware of uh, race differences? I can remember it so clearly, so, so clearly. And, and when, you say, when, you say, when you use the term race differences, I can take my mind back to that very moment. Mm. And I can feel the impact. I can feel the impact in me now. And it's really, it's, it's, you know, it's sad, really. It's sad. I mean, I was 10 years old in the classroom, mm. St Andrews Primary School in Stockwell, with all my mates. And all my mates were, well, all my mates. I mean, all, all the kids in the class, girls and boys, a lot of West Indian kids, a lot of white British kids, me as well. But up to that point, up to a particular point, I wasn't aware of myself. These mm. were just my mates. I had mates from the Caribbean, a Jama- lot, lot of Jamaican kids, Barbadian kids, Irish kids. And when I think about it, it didn't make a difference to us then. They were just my mm. mates. I didn't even know they were a different colour. They were just Raymond. They were Claude. They were... Errol. And, yeah. yeah, Errol, <laughs> Terry, Augustus, yeah. whoever, all the yeah, he came later on. But yeah, I mean, all, yeah, I mean, all these, Jackie, Sharon, I mean, these, the names, they could be children from any background, any racial background, and they were. And I wasn't really, I wasn't really aware of myself of being any different to anyone else. Like lots of kids, as children, we were innocent. I grew up in a, mm. you know, we, I grew up in Stockwell. And the kids around there were the same. We'd go out, we'd go out in the, around the flats where we lived. We'd go out, we'd play football, we'd play runouts, we'd play cricket in the summer, and all the rest of it, and have a good time, and you know, get into all sorts of do all sorts of mischief. But a particular time I remember, you asked me, was there a particular time? And I do, and it was in the classroom, St Andrew's Primary School. Mm. The teacher, 
Mr. Wharton, his name was, he had a copy of the Sun newspaper. On the front of the Sun newspaper was a picture of a skinhead and his mum. The headline, and I can vaguely remember the headline, but it was, she was boasting about the fact that she had paid five pounds for a f- pair of what they used to call bother boots. They were actually Dr. Martin Dr. boots. Dr. Martin's, yeah. That the skinheads used to wear. He was proudly wearing these... Levi's with braces and a shirt and these bother boots. And she was very pleased at the fact that he, that he looked like he did, that he had these bother boots on. And in the, in the piece, in the, pa- in the paper, the whole thing was about why he wanted these bother boots. And he wanted these bother boots so he could go <coughs> packy-bashing, as mm. he called it. Mm. And, I, and he held this paper up to the class and he was sort of sniggering about it. He was pleased. He was sniggering. And I, and I, the kids were kind of sniggering with him. Or they were sort of looking at it. Oh, let's read it. So they became engaged with it. They wanted, to, yeah. they wanted to read it as well. And I felt this awful, awful feeling in the pit of my stomach. Awkwardness. A really strange feeling that I'd never felt. I felt sick. I, 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 it was for them to, for me to find out that there was a hatred for people from that part of the world, Pakistan. And the, the hatred really hurt me because they were talking about people that I loved. Yeah. My grandparents, my mum. Yeah. People I didn't even know had a colour, incidentally, I might mention. To me, there were people of warmth, of support, and and advice, of counsel. I could go to these people to get comfort. They were absolutely perfect for me. Mm, mm. And um, when I when I sort of sensed that the class were gleefully wanting to read this article in the paper, as I said, it sent a pit of hurt, shame, confusion down to my very soul, right, mm. to my very fabric. The newspaper did the rounds in the classroom and it came round to me. I, I couldn't, I, I scanned, I was 10 years old, I mean, I scanned over it, over the headline, and I, I remember taking the newspaper and I, I didn't want the kids to engage with this stuff. I took the newspaper, scrunched it up and put it in the bin. This was from the teacher's desk? No, he, he, he gave the paper around. Some kids oh, asked to look at it, so I it went around the classroom yeah, and it came to yeah. me. I took it, screwed it up and put yeah. it in the bin and he asked where the paper was. Yeah. And I said, um, I put it in the bin. He said, and I remember, he said, you put it in the bin. I said, yeah, yeah. I did. He says, <laughs> and that was it. Oh, and it was goodness. left in the, in the, the, the feeling was left in the ether. The feeling was left with me and the feeling stayed with me. Yeah because the impact of what he had done, the reverberations through the classroom, the kids were not... You're talking about black kids, you're talking about white kids. They were not of Asian heritage. Yeah. They were not Pakistani. Yeah. Their yeah. families didn't go. So it was someone that these kids could point the finger to and jump onto that hatred bandwagon as well, if you like. And I say that very loosely. It sounds a bit unkind. It sounds a bit harsh. It's not quite like that. But that's what I felt. Yeah. I felt different. Mm. There was no one I could turn to in South London in the mm. 1960s, mm. or actually it was 1970, but there was no one, there was no one 
at that period that I could turn to. Were were you the only um, like Pakistani English mixed kid in in the in the class or in the school? Or? Probably in the school. Probably in the school in, in our part of South London where we were. There were I can't remember any other Asian kids. Mm. Um, but I have to say, you asked me about that. I didn't feel Pakistan. I didn't feel. I didn't feel. I knew that we had relations in India too. Uh, that. Nana used to write to her sister and her husband were there in in Kanpur. Yeah. I knew that there was sort of communications over there, also in Pakistan, also around the world. Mm. And just to clear this up, uh, Nana is our grandmother. Grandma, yeah, yeah, grandmother, yeah. Um, from the Punjab, she was yeah. Punjabi girl. Um, she used to communicate with people all over the world from a little writing desk up in. In, she lived in Hayes, little 1960s writings there. So she used to sit at, read her Daily Express and write via airmail, yeah. not email, airmail yeah. across the world. And they communicate. Anyway, um, where was I? Uh, what was I <laughs> <laughs> So I asked, you, know, I asked you, um, were there any other No, kids there were like not. But, th- but this is the point, isn't yeah. it? Although our family were from that part of the world. I, like you, and like all the other kids I knew, were Londoners. Yeah. We were from Stockwell, we were from Lambeth. Yeah. So you didn't really think, oh, I'm Pakistani or I'm I didn't, white. It I, was I, like... I, I, I was not Pakistani. I'm yeah. not Pakistani. I, yeah. I was born in London to a heritage that comes from that part of the world. Yeah. But essentially, I'm a Londoner. With, and yeah. I love all the things about London that everyone else likes, like yeah. you. Like yeah. my my mates who have Jamaican mums and dads and Barbadian mums and dads and yeah. Irish about mums and dads, we were Londoners. Yeah, growing Londoners, up on a council yeah. estate in London. We'd play football together, we'd do run out, we'd ride our bikes together. Mm, we mm. were all happy. I didn't, f- and I still don't, I don't, I don't even know how to be Pakistani. I you know, I don't know how to be that. I know yeah, how to be a yeah. Londoner like you. Yeah. And everything and everyone that I've ever known from very pale white to very dark skin and all the nationalities in between those two parameters, if you like. Yeah. I've mixed with and mm. I've married to and I've made friends to and I've loved and I think yeah. I still do. You yeah. Know? You know, there's something that that um, we were speaking a couple of weeks ago and you said something about um, some some man in the estate called you the P word and then you ran to mum and... No, it was it was not the P word exactly. He called me, I mean, in those days... I mean, oh, to, oh, that's right. He called you... Uh, yeah, I ran home to mum. I don't know what we were doing. Us kids were you know, getting up to whatever. Nothing very much, I might add. Um, he called me a black bee, black bastard, he said. Yeah, yeah. And I was really, I was proper confused. I mean, you know, I went home to mum, I said, mum, uh, the, the man, I didn't say, use the whole word, I said, mum, that man around the corner, he, you know, that old man that said, da, 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 he called me a black, black bee. She said, and she said, yes. I said, mum, uh, am I black? <laughs> she said, Daniel, in this country, if you're not white, you're black. And I still, I didn't quite know what she meant. I was too young, um, mm. but I know now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the guy said it because, you know, he was an older man, he of a certain generation. And mum, I mean, I didn't know. My mum had suffered. I mean, she, mum, mum had suffered terribly. Um, <clears throat> you know, being a young girl when she came here, she was quite dark-skinned, mum. She had yeah. very quite thick, short hair. Many times, because of where we lived, people thought she was from the... The West Indies. She yes, thought she was yes. from Trinidad or yep. from Jamaica or something because of a very coarse, short hair yeah. and darker skin. So, Mum must have um, must have related a lot to, you know, um, black people 
in you know in the fifties, sixties. Because the the thing about the thing I found out, I didn't realise who the who the culprits were really. I didn't understand why. I didn't understand where it came from, where all that hatred came mm, from. Mm. But what I do know is that my black mates, my Irish mates, didn't have that sort of vocabulary in their language. They didn't have this. They didn't have any hatred. They embraced every. That, this is what I, I remember distinctly. Yeah. I, I just felt embraced by those communities. Yeah. As I hope they felt embraced by me. Yeah. And my family, and it was fine. It was fine. And I still, yeah, I can relate to it. Yeah. That's, and it sort of set, it set up boundaries between us all. It set up, up camps, if you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Kids would end up going to the camp they felt most comfortable in. And it didn't feel comfortable me doing that because I didn't view myself as being... I was just me, for God's sake. Mm, I was a Londoner. Mm. I liked Chelsea Football Club. I liked <laughs> Salatio Loafers. You know, I liked, you know, whatever, reggae, Desmond yeah. Decker, whatever yeah. was going on at the time, you yeah, know. Yeah. On the buses and all that stuff that was on, t- you know, Police Sir and all that. So, but you you just made to feel a bit different and therefore, you, st- unbeknownst to me, you kind of start acting a bit different because you, people pigeonhole you. Say, oh, if yeah. they see me like that, I'm going to be like that, you know, yeah. and you're forced down this road. And it's something that I've lived with for a long time. I mean, as an aside, as an aside, there wasn't really anyone, anyone that I could, of course I could talk to mum about it and other members of the family. There wasn't really anyone until that I could really relate to until I read a book by a man called Hanif Qureshi. Mm, mm. And I was 30 when I read that. And I was so moved by what he had written, I wrote to him. And he very kindly wrote back. I mean, you know, he wrote, you know, for people who don't know, he wrote, and they turned it into a screenplay on BBC, he wrote The Buddha of Suburbia. Uh, he himself, Hanif Qureshi, grew up in, he actually grew up in Bromley too. I think his, I think his dad was Indian or Pakistani, I can't remember. And mum was white mm. and all the problems mm. he, he faced. And um, it wasn't until I got to that stage that I thought, gosh, at last there's someone out there who kind of knows what I'm feeling. That, yeah, someone is like me who's been through similar things. It was all that, yeah. Mm. And um, it, I mean, of course, I mean, I'd read... Maya Angelou, I'd read Malcolm X, I'd read Gandhi's life story. I was quite aware. I was quite aware of, and I became, you know, I was very proud and still am. Um, but it's sort of, I realised it, it set me on a path, if you like, of, uh, it set me on a path of, uh, of, of embracing the difference. Yeah. If you like. Yeah, yeah. And so, there is, there was, and there is for me no race dilemma at all. I know exactly who I am. Yeah. Exactly who I am. I'm proud to be of mixed heritage, of Pakistani, Punjabi heritage. I'm absolutely 100% with yeah. it, like many, yeah. many people, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, as we'll come on to later on, we'll, we'll see what. Of course. Well, we'll, I mean, we'll, there's, we'll there's look a, at the point of this podcast in a minute. That's right. That's we'll right. Yeah, there's it. a reason why we've called it the race dilemma, right? So let me just answer your question. Then I want to ask you a question. Okay. All right, I want to sort of get you. So there we are. So there we are. We're half a generation apart. Yeah. 
And that was me at 10 I'm talking about. So cut to five years later, I've been through secondary school. I'm in, I'm in secondary school and I'm dealing with all the stuff that's in secondary school and it's there, it's, the racism is there. It's in the fabric of the school, how they ran the school. I look back at it now and it's so obvious. I didn't mm, realise it at the mm. time. And I could go on and on about that, but let's not. Let's cut to five years after that little incident. Five years of me becoming... a little. Oh, well, I was a bit confused, to be honest. Let's put it that way. I hadn't really found my feet because I was only from 10 to 15. I mean, what do you know, you know? But when you came along, Mum got married again, obviously. You came along. Um, and there you were. Where it looked, I remember going to the hospital to see you. I remember looking over the edge of the cot, this little brown bundle of joy and there you were <laughs> I wanted a girl incident I wanted mum to have a girl and I remember saying to mum Maria yeah I remember saying to mum I don't care what you call her her I'm going to call her Maria but of course then <laughs> Andrew came along Andrew yeah. Robert Hawley yeah. came along yeah and all thoughts of a girl went out the window because I loved you so much I still love you oh. and here we are and here we are so, so that was 15 years later but I know it was different to you because we're half a generation apart. That's right. I know by the time you got to school, it was still around. But then, as we spoke about the other day, music helped you get through difficult periods, put you on the map. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's funny you said say that because my sort of early... I don't, th I don't, I didn't, like you, I didn't really, I didn't really think about it until an incident that happened in the local area where I was living, where we were living at the time in Mount Nod. Um, there was a kid who lived around the corner and he was into fixing up BMXs and he, and he called me a, a, a fat packy <laughs> and and it was it wasn't until that point that I was like, "Hang on a minute, my mum is Pakistani, but my dad is white English or white Australian." You know, he was always Australian to me, even, even though he was born, he was born in, in Peckham. <laughs> in Peckham, no, in Kent, and then moved to That's Peckham. Right. That's right. Um, and then moved to Australia. He was he was always my dad, but then there's this boy who looks who's the same color as my dad calling me this name and it just it just created this confusion of okay so and i think that was you know kind of one of my early recollection recollections of oh actually yes i'm mixed you know and I, I can't remember how old i must have been about 10 or 11 or something like that when when that boy said that to you yeah what, what did you what, well, whatever. For, let's forget about the reasons why he said it. I mean, he said it, but what did you do with it when he when he said it? How did you deal with it? What? Well, because he was he was older than me. He was probably about five or six years older than me. How old were you? I, was, I must have been about. I remember him being about fourteen. So I must. I could have been about. I could have been about eight or nine. Right. To put things into perspective. Um, how how did I feel when when you know what I felt a little bit kind of almost a bit scared because here's this older kid kind of seen as a bit of a bully he's a bit kind of you know full of himself so let me pause you there again excuse yeah. me excuse me I just want to point something out yeah and there you have just 
described racism in a nutshell. Yeah. The power structure. Yeah. The hierarchy, the strength. You're intimidated by his age. Intimidated. By his yeah. size. Mm -hmm. By the power that he has to say that, that the front he's got to say that, and knows, knowing he can get away with it. Mm. It's all there. It's yeah. all there. But there's a, sto there's a story. Um, the story continues, actually, because he always remained in the area. And I've... Coming back to the the whole music thing, I, I you know I got into listening to hip hop music via uh, a good friend of mine that I met in the in the area, and you know we got into break dancing into this whole culture. How old are you then? So I must have been so I was nine, ten years old. Oh, it happened then the break dancing thing. The, yeah, all right. So I was ten. So nineteen eighty five. I remember Darren, my best friend, still best friends with him. Um, moved to Streatham and we, you know, we became friends. And, you know, he had so much respect for me. There was no sort of colour barriers or anything. He's this white kid with ginger hair, you know, and we became best mates. So we started connecting with this music, hip-hop music, um, electro music, and then sort of further, a few, few years later, you have groups like Public Enemy who are coming out with this kind of black power stuff. And it just got me thinking about, you know, like the, the message that they put out was, was about being proud of yourself. And, and, I, and I took that to, to, to kind of, to my own kind of heritage, if you like, and, and started to feel proud of who, who, who I was, proud of my mum's side and proud of my dad's side. So I'm proud that I'm actually mixed. And... Um, Late, it wasn't until, because I guess Public Enemy and, and hip-hop music at the time was seen as quite aggressive music. So there was, a, there was an attitude associated with that, which I obviously adapted a little bit. Uh, not too much, because it wasn't really my character, but I, I was still like, you know, there was still a kind of militant kind of thing that came off the back of listening to Public Enemy. And I remember seeing this guy... In, in in the KFC actually in Streatham, and he sort of looked at me and oh, the same guy that the said, same guy that said the racist remark, fat, yeah, Packy, yeah, and obviously I was slightly taller than him. He hadn't grown beyond a certain height. I was mm -hmm. taller than him, mm -hmm. bigger than him. Mm -hmm. I'd obviously put on weight, and um, and I just I looked at him and I looked him dead in the eye, and he could not look at me in the eye. And it was and I and I followed him out. Out outside the, the shop and he basically didn't say a word, he just got on his bike and rode off and that to me was like there you go, you know, there you go and it was almost like a sense of you Empower, know, empowerment it's it empowerment. was an empowerment, I almost got my empowerment back at that point, you know, from did you, feel, did you feel that you'd lost it then when he made that remark to you? Well yeah, kind of, I just felt a bit a bit small, a bit intimidated a bit small, intimidated, um, hurt yeah, you know yeah. and you know, obviously when I think about it now, you know I, you know, I don't hold a grudge against him, you know, there's, there's obviously got to be forgiveness there, otherwise you can't carry things, but that was, that was a moment for me you know, coming back to to, to meet him sort of years later and him thinking, oh my goodness, this, this guy has grown up. He's, you know, he's got this kind of bit of hip hop swagger about him. I'm not going to 
cross him. I yeah, cross I'm not, him. I can't. I can't cross his no. path again. No. You know, and he knew. He knew who I was. Yeah, you know. When I think about my mum, was uh, mum was in a mix. She married my dad, an Englishman, in nineteen sixty. And I, I, I did ask her about what it was like for her. I mean, we. I mean, I mean, I can't just say it without saying that we actually got in trouble. We got in trouble with the first husband. You know, he gave us mm. both a hard time. Mm. He was a tyrant. And I used, I used to say to her, you know, years later, Mum, you know, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you get out of the relationship? What, what made you stay? And she said, Oh, Daniel, in those days it was different. You know, you couldn't. It's not like now. You know, I was this. You know, I was a woman of colour. People saw me as a, you know, this this little black. Asian woman with with a child, I didn't have the power. I didn't feel empowered mm, to do mm. anything about my situation. The the tell the, the sorry, I beg your pardon. The scales were tipped in another favour mm. to his favourite. Yeah. Like being a man, being white, and I guess he knew it. I guess he knew it. Mum was intimidated by him. He used and uh, used her. When I say used, I want to. I mean, abused her and me sort of physically. Um, uh, you know, and I did ask her, and of course, you know, my generation, your generation, we wouldn't stand for it. Mm. I'm saying that, and I don't mean that to because there's lots of people suffering. I don't mean it to sound in that way. That, no, you no, know, you can do something. But we you're know, saying times have changed now. Obviously, time, yeah, I'm not saying times have changed. If it had been now, maybe Mum could have done something about it, yeah, or even yeah. when you were young, maybe she could have done something about it. Um, but I often wondered what it was like for her. I mean, she was a lovely, pretty woman. You yeah. know, and men used to like her. She had a yeah. good-looking face, and he was a he was a teddy boy actually, right? From from West London, and I think I think he I think actually the reason why he he well he got violent with with I suppose both, but I think one of the reasons why is because he was having a dilemma because he was not supposed to fall in love with a dark-skinned woman. Mm, mm. He was not supposed to feel what he felt for her, but he did feel for her. But he was torn between his mates, his background, his family. He wasn't supposed to love her in the way that he did, and I think he took it out on her. Yeah. He yeah. took it out on her. And this yeah. woman could, and the mum could have, she she missed out, he missed out on mum the wonderful woman that she was. Yeah. She was a great homemaker. She was comforting to us. Yeah, warm uh, heart. You know. Absolutely. And yeah. he missed out on that because of his own pre internal prejudices. Yeah. yeah, his own demons. His own demons, exactly. And when your dad came, you know, when your dad Brian came on the scene, I mean, <laughs> he, he, you know, he was laid back about the whole thing. He didn't give a toss. You know, no. he, was, he, he you know, embraced mum. He loved her. Uh, you know, he was just—he didn't didn't give a shit, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, he didn't—he didn't—he didn't engage with any of the nonsense. He wasn't yeah. having any of it. Well, I guess you know, my dad was—he was, you know, he was well travelled. He, you know, he born in the UK, moved to Australia, you know, moved to South Africa, and then moved back to the UK. So he was, you know, he was well travelled. He was in never. There was never. I mean, I used to. It, it was like a breath of fresh. I mean, I remember, Mum absolutely loved your dad. I remember them walking up the road holding hands, and they would, you know, loving with one another. It was so refreshing to see. And there's, yeah. there's a picture of you. You must have it. Where Mum's, they're actually you were just born. You were so, well, you were not walking. Say you were six months or something. 
mum's got that green dress on. Yes. And she's lying yes, in the park. Yeah, yeah. And she's lying down in the park with you. That's right. And she is absolutely, I can see in her face, she's, her whole demeanour had changed because she'd got the family that she wanted. Yeah. She was happy. She was, she looked lovely. She looked, you know, fresh in a yeah. nice dress that she'd made. She was smiling. She was smiling. She, yeah. she had you there, you know, and uh, yeah. And it made a whole difference to her. Mm. So the question of race with mum and your dad, Brian, I don't think reared its head in the same way as it did 10 years previous. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We moved to Streatham where there was much more of a mixed community. People around us were mixed, you know. You mm. had friends that had different colour mum and dad. Yeah, you know, yeah. Mixed race kids were more obvious in schools. Yeah, and the like, absolutely, you know? yeah. I remember a lot Str of mixed Streatham, race there kids. was a lot of kind of... Well, it was just mixed, kind of a lot of hippie types, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was the, the, the time of the cheesecloth shirt and the, the, the beads and the Bob Dylan records and the Beatles yeah. and all that stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it made a difference. Yeah. It made a difference. Maybe it was the time we were there, maybe it's the area, a combination of everything. Combination, yeah. 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 It made for a good mix growing up, Stratton. Yeah, it really, really did, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 But, sorry, we've digressed, haven't we? Yeah, we've but gone. that's all right. It's okay. This is... So let's good. go back. Good. So let's go back to the hip hop thing. So, so it's the Public Enemy thing. Yeah. Incidentally, do you remember us going to see Public Enemy? I do. Nineteen eighty-eight, and they were supporting Run DMC at the Brixton Academy. Do you That's remember right. that? <laughs> I remember you asking me to go. Yeah, I must have been twelve. Uh, eighty-eight. So oh, eight, eight five, six, seven, eight. So I was 13. thirteen. I remember you saying. I remember you asking me. You said. Daniel, will you come to see Public Enemy? I said, oh, no, Andrew, I can't go and see them. You know, I can't, I'm not, you know. And you said, Dan, please, if you don't come, Mum says she's going to come. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, all right, I'd all better right. come with you then, bruv. <laughs> I remember, I remember it. I well, it's because I was under 18, you know. Yeah. I don't think, I didn't even think there was a restriction on age, but I think if you were under 18, you had to be accompanied by an adult, and obviously you were. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember distinctly yeah, going yeah. to see it. What did you What did you think, like seeing seeing that? Because obviously you 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 were not into that music back then. I mean, you can kind of look at that type of music now and go, you know, I appreciate it. You appreciate it a lot no, more. I just, you, you... Then I thought it was just a load of noise. Yeah, yeah. I'd grown up with I'd grown up with. Uh, Melodic soul and reggae, and yeah, uh, yeah. you know, soft George Benson jazz and the like, and a lot of jazz, like Crusaders and people mm, like that. Mm. I'd grown up with that stuff where music was melodious, you know, yeah. it was, <laughs> it was you know, it's a bit of James Brown, a bit of Aretha, obviously, all that stuff. Stevie, yeah. obviously, Stevie Wonder, but a lot of that you talk about music, I mean, <laughs> yeah, reggae. I mean, we used to go to the market on a Saturday, me and mum would go to the market. And I'd be like all the other boys walking trailing behind their mum with the, with the, with the shopping bags carrying the stuff for their, you know. But I remember going through Brixton Market with mum and, and there'd be a, a couple of reggae stalls there and they were there for years. But probably listening to there. that music, I remember walking, what's that? I said, they're probably still there. <laughs> I think one's a mobile phone shop now. <laughs> but I remember trailing behind mum and they then putting this wonderful reggae, they used to, Echo, through, echo the through the market. Yeah, and I used to love yeah, it, and I used yeah. to beg my mum, hang on, hang on, hang on, mum, hang on, hang on, hang on, mum, <laughs> hang on, hang on, and uh, you know she told Daniel, come on, come on, she'd want to go walk really fast, and but I used to, when I used to listen to it, the beat of the reggae in those days, anyway, it used to sort of 
go with, I don't know how to describe it, it was to go with the beat of my heart, you know, yeah, it was kind of, yeah. used to float me along, mm, I used to just mm. love it. Yeah. And I still love reggae of now, mm. as I did then. I know, and it's funny how, like, music, music, especially reggae, you know, hip-hop, soul, and, you know, we were talking about how it just brought people together. Well, I mean, it wasn't until, I remember, as I said, as we mentioned the other day, I remember going out, I was 18 years old, and my was a 17, 17 or 18 years old, we went to a club in Villiers Street in Charing Cross, Millerway, mm. Augustus. We went to a club called the Global Village. Many people listening to this, well, many people, whoever's listening to this may know if they're a certain generation, but it was the first soul club I ever went to, proper soul club. And as I said the other day, I walked in there, we paid our money, we walked down the stairs and there was this wonderful soul music, this dance music coming out of the speakers. I walked into the into the club, it was a huge place and that's the first time I saw a white boy dancing like a black boy. And I walked in there and I thought, he looks fantastic. <laughs> and there were girls dancing, black girls, white girls, Asian. It, it was all mixed in there, all come together to listen to this soul music and dance. It was a real feeling of unity, mm. of unity I can't describe. You, we were not judged. None yeah. of us were judged there. We yeah. could be ourselves. We could get intimate. We could dance. It was the latest moves, all that stuff. Yeah. So like you said, no race dilemma in that place. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, whatever race you were, you were just... You just you were all held together by this, by the music and by the dancing. Yeah. And you embraced everyone and you enjoyed everyone for what they were. Yeah. yeah. There was none of that. There was none, there was no awkward feeling about being there. There were, there were places in those days that we could have gone to, pubs, certain clubs, certain parts of London, certain parts of the suburbs, where we just, we just wouldn't have felt right. Mm, mm. So we didn't go to any of those places. <laughs> so you went to the places that were yeah. embracing. And there, were yeah. there, were, there were and there were plenty of them. Mm. And um and it all helped. Yeah. It I mean it was the same it was the same for me growing up in the you know, I I guess when I started going out properly in the nineties and going to all these, you know, I mean that was the golden age of hip hop music. And you know, there was no kind of you know, there was no race barriers at all. Like it was, you know, you had white kids, Asian kids, black kids, all going to see their favorite hip hop band. And, and, and one of the reasons actually what, you know, like going back to Public Enemy now, they, they, they did this amazing show in, in the Hammersmith Odeon in 1987. And they, they had it recorded. I think the BBC recorded it. And I think they were so amazed by the response and, you know, the, the kind of diversity of people in that, came, that had come to watch them perform. You know, I think they had no idea, like, that all these white kids and black kids and Asian kids and mixed kids and what have you are all in the same building that have come yeah. to see them. Yeah. They had no idea. Yeah. So they... they they sort of um, they sort of said that London is the hip hop capital of the world. Oh, really? You know, because because of that feeling and that response they got from this sort of diverse mix of people in the crowd. So so much so that they took those recordings and they they put snippets on their um, 
their monumental album, It Takes a Nation of Millions, Hold Us Back. So all those little snippets in, in that album of the live shows are from that London show. Oh. Because, and, and, you know, it just goes to show how, um, you know, how, how something like that can impact, you know, uh, a group like Public Enemy to, to, to then go and, you know, tour the world and, and, and um, gain the, all of these fans from different um, backgrounds. Mm. Mm. And that's what it was like. That was, that's what it was like for, for us in, growing up in the 90s. You know, we'd go to all these hip-hop clubs and dances and concerts and there was, you know, you didn't, you, you didn't think about, you know, race or, or any... If you, of, think you know, about, if you think about that time, late 80s to now... What are we talking about? How many years is that? That's not 30 years, is it? 30, oh, it's 30, 30 plus years. All <laughs> oh, right, whatever it is. So, 19, yeah. so 1990 would be 30 years ago. So, you're 32 years ago, say? So, so, right, okay. Is it that long? So, yeah. a generation ago, a good generation ago, right? So, here you are now, you know, with your lovely family. Here's me with mine. Yeah. Here's, here we are now. With, yeah, here's. Lots of obviously lots of water under the bridge. Obviously, we can't go through our life stories. No, <laughs> but I just wanted to ask you. I just wanted to ask you. Obviously, you and I are very proud of who we are, where we've mm. come from. We're proud of our heritage. We we hold on to it. We embrace it, like many thousands of people do, and quite rightly too. Obviously, unfortunately, I would say for I'm not well. No, I won't say unfortunately yet. I was going to ask you. Do, do you feel now in 2020, in fact, do you feel that you have to justify yourself in any way? Do you feel an impact of being other now? Do you, do you feel uncomfortable in any situation now? It's a good question. It's a good question. Have things changed or, do you, or you just walking down the street, you're, you're Drew Hawley, you're a producer and you, you know, you've got everything going on, you know, you're personable. You've been successful. You are successful. So, does it ever impact on you? Are you? Do you have to remind yourself who you are? Do you get pigeonholed? I I don't think I do. Like being a music producer and working with you know all different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different genres of music. You know, um, I I I I don't. I think a lot of it is in is in the mind, I think, you know, I think, you know, you can, you can adapt, obviously, when I'm with, you know, a certain group of friends, then I feel a certain way, I can speak a certain way, you know, if I'm mm -hmm. with another group of people, mm -hmm. then I can adapt and you know, speak so more you're putting like, on So you're putting on different hats? I, I, I think so, and I think I can do that, just... I, I think probably everyone has to do that, don't they? I think they? everybody does that in some way regardless or form, of, yeah, regardless of race, you yeah. know. But to answer your question, I don't, I don't feel, um, I don't feel any like different. I don't feel any, um, yeah, you know. I, I've seen certain things within the music industry, um, you know, being a hip hop producer, um, working in the sort of black music industry, you do notice. I've noticed things over the years um, 
but from a commercial point of view, so from commercial music being released and how, you know, how it's how it's controlled from a high level. But that's that's another conversation. But in terms of my own, you know, personally, I I I don't um, I don't feel that you know people. I don't you know I don't walk into the supermarket and you know. No, notice that maybe this little old white lady looks at me and goes, "Oh, you know, who's who's this?" You know, like I don't, I don't get that. Yeah. And what I try and do as well is, what do you mean you don't get it? You don't see it, or you just no, don't understand it? No, no, no. I, I just don't see. Yeah, I don't see. Like I don't notice that maybe she might look at me a certain way because I'm thinking she doesn't. You know. So um, to give you an example, you know. If we were to go into the country or go down to Surrey or something like that, and we were to go into a pub, and you know, there's been times where I've noticed people look around, having a bit of a look, and they're like, yeah. "Oh, okay, we don't normally see brown people, brown people walking into this sort of pub," um, but it's fine because I, what I try and do is break down barriers. So where they might think, oh. You know, maybe he's, you know, I don't know. But maybe it's just curiosity, but I don't judge them for it. You know, it's just, I just see it as they don't see many brown people in the pub, you know. It's funny you say that because I take a different view. I have a different view about it. I think I think that's fine for you to do that. And yeah, you know, and you know what I do is I try and break down barriers. So I will start talking to people deliberately, you know, and... Then they're like, oh, okay, this, this, you know. This guy's all right. This guy's normal. He's just like my mate down the road, you know. So, so then it kind of, you know, maybe they might look at me and just think, okay, yeah, he's, he's just like any other guy, you know. I want to I I say that, that I don't do that. I actually refuse to do that. I think that um, <laughs> I, I'm pissed off. And fed up with doing that. Mm. I'm not going to do it ever. Because mm. mm. I don't think that I should. Not that you do, but I'm not. I'm not squirming for a, for acceptance. I'm not <laughs> almost cowering for them to sort of accept me and respect me. If they don't like what they see, it's their problem. Mm. I'm who I am, you know. Mm. Mm. But the 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 the, the, the sad. Oh, well, the sad thing about if sad is the right word. The thing about it is, I get, you know, I end up getting pissed off. Right. You know, yeah, I end yeah, up, yeah. it ends up pissing me off. And I think if I were a different character, I might, I might react differently in a, in a more aggressive way. I, get, I might get really pissed off at being pigeonholed, at being yeah. categorised, at being prejudged. And I hate that. And I might react in a, in a, in a more aggressive way if, if that ends up being like that, you mm, know. Mm, but I won't, mm. I won't. I won't go out my way to to prove my worth, if you like. Mm, mm. I think they have to accept me. Yeah, and that's the end of it. If they don't, tough. Yeah, <laughs> lump it. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. You know, why should I? I'm me. You know, I'm just. Yeah. I'm just I've got. But I guess you know, like I mean, just what I said just kind of probably summed up my character a little bit. Is I'll just talk to anyone. Anyway. Well, it's I suppose it's a mean? bit of survival as well, isn't it? Yeah, maybe. I mean, to, to be honest, I don't. I, I've not really thought about it, but I know that when I've been in that situation, I've not thought about it, and I've just been myself and just gone on and just spoken to people mm-hmm. normally, rather than going, yeah, 
Mm. Yeah, he just looked at me funny. Maybe yeah, he yeah, thinks yeah, I'm a yeah. certain way. Yeah, yeah. I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to be myself. Yeah. And then I think automatically, naturally, that just breaks down a barrier because they're like, oh yeah, this. this. It's sad that you have to even think about it and work at work at it. Though, well, well this it? the thing, but I, I don't. But I, I've never had to work on it. That's what. That's my point. I'm mm-hmm. just being myself. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know. I guess we're, we're you know, we're all different. We're all different. We're all, we're all gonna, you know, yeah, react. react to, yeah, exactly. Let's pause it there a minute. Should we pause it? There? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Before we sort of, st- I mean, we've given a bit about our background, <clears throat> and I just want to get back to the point of this podcast and why mm. now, um, why now is we we decided to do it, and there's lots that we can talk about. Loads within our own family. There's mm. loads of stuff there. I think that there are voices that have not been heard in our own family, very close to us, younger people, older people. I think we've got loads and loads of stuff here, yeah. just within our little League of Nations family. You know? <laughs> yeah. But what what really sparked this podcast off mm. was a message I got from my daughter Florence. She, I talk to her every day. She messages me. She usually messages me. We FaceTime or we chat on the phone or talks about work and whatever. We just catch up, you know, just touch base every day. She very sweetly does that when she finishes work, usually when she's walking from the station to home. A couple of minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is. You know, sometimes when we FaceTime, she's indoors and all that, you know. And we're very close. Um, she she sent me a message rather than FaceTime. She sent me a message. She said, Dad, I'll, I don't want to speak to you. <clears throat> and I thought it was about work. Or So I sent her, I said, that sounds ominous. Why don't you just FaceTime? She said, oh, it's, it's something that's a little bit different. I've got a, I'm, I'm, I'm having a race dilemma. So I said, I said to her, before I got back to her, I didn't reply back. I said <clears> to her <throat> brother, <clears throat> I said to my son, I said, what's, what's going on with, with your sister? She said, that she's got a race dilemma. There's a race time. What on earth? <laughs> I thought, you know, 30 years later after, 30, 40, 50 years after I'm talking about that incident in the classroom, my daughter, this third generation immigrant of, again, mixed heritage, mm. Irish background mum, Irish English background mum, um, having a race dilemma. So I asked my son about it. I said, well, what's going on, son? You know, why should... And he said, oh... It's basically um, social media, Dad. You know, this thing about black awareness, if you like. Um, How can I explain it? She, being of very pale skin, can't, and people look at her as being white, Mm. she can't relate to the white experience so much, even though her mum's white, lots of her friends or her partner's white but she doesn't fully relate to being white, even though she looks white. Mm. So she hears people talking about race awareness. Is she aware? If she's not aware, then she ought to be. And she's getting this confusion thing. I said, well, actually, I am very aware. I have to look at pictures of my, me and my grandma, my wonderful grandma, who I didn't even know was a different colour until whenever. Mm. She was just my grandma, my granddad, you know, family, great-grandma and granddad and all the rest of it. I'm supposed to feel the confusion she felt in a, in a nutshell is because she looked very, she looks white, 
and she can't relate to being totally white. Mm. People make assumptions about her and how she might think. And she's saying, hello, I don't think like that because of my background. My heritage is not like that. So she's having this bit of a crisis, a bit of a dilemma. Mm. How does she get through it? How does she get over it? How does she view herself? You know, what she's... She said, and she had, I had a conversation with her. Oh, you know, where was grandma? She knows where grandma was born, but she's just trying to get a handle on who she is, really. Although she's always known it, we've always been very open. and She knows all about her history, her ancestral history. So does my son. But she was faced with this dilemma, if you mm, like, mm. and not quite being able, not being able to relate to being white. Yeah. So, so she, kind of not knowing where she kind of, where she sits. No, kind no, of no, where she no. fit. No, even though people see her as white and she yeah. would go into the white camp if the, if the, if the, if the, if the choice, if she had to make a choice, people would categorise her as being white, but she doesn't feel white. It's yeah. not, she doesn't feel white inside. Yeah. And I, you know, it got me thinking, I, you know, I walked away after having a conversation with her thinking, Jeez, all these years later, and our yeah. family is still feeling this stuff. Yeah, in a different way. But this guy, if she's if she's been harboring this for X amount of years or months or whatever, whatever it is, um, surely there must be a platform to talk about this stuff. Does, yeah. does my son feel it? Yeah, she feels it. Does my son feel it? What about my cousins? What about their children? Yeah, what about you know what, what's going on here. There should be a platform for this. I want, I want this to be out in the open. I want to talk freely and openly about this. And and that's exactly why we've started this, is the this framework po- for the podcast, podcast yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So I think hopefully the next person, as this is sparked by her, the next person who comes on does the first or second episode, hopefully will be Florence. Yeah. Even if we can just have a chat with her over the phone and she can chat to us on FaceTime and... yeah. She can let us know what her feelings that. are yeah. about it. So we better keep this all open because your children are only eight and four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By the time they're 25, exactly. they may have their own story. Exactly, and then we can play them the podcast and say, listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> they, actually, oh, as you mentioned it, Dad, you know, yeah. she, they, she might say, you know, your girls might say, oh, well, funny you mentioned it, Dad, but, you yeah. know. Yeah, Let's hope... I'm just hoping, pray that by another generation, something's changed. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, like even even the pictures they bring home, like drawings that they do of themselves at school, you know, like Scarlett will colour herself in slightly brown, you know, and so will Luda as well. Yeah, Florence did that. Florence, I, I, still, got the, I still got the picture in I my remember, kitchen. Yeah. I've got it framed up. <laughs> yeah. The only person that was white in Florence's little drawing when she was four was Grandad. <laughs> was Grandad, yeah. Yeah, mm. it's just strange, isn't it? I see, yeah. you know, I don't. Yeah, so it just just goes to show how they how they view themselves. You yeah, know? I uh, wasn't in the picture. I, Grandma, Granddad, the cat, Abel, and Florence. Yeah, I haven't got. I can't remember exactly. Mate. Yeah, I think she cut it. Was yeah. just who was in the room at the time, wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe on your favourite directory. And if you've liked it even more, then please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Again, if you would like to be featured on the Race Dilemma podcast, please reach out to us on theracedilemmapodcast at gmail.com. That's it from us, and we'll see you on the next episode.